And the title of the message is The Lamb's Bride Described. So you can turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, uh, this is a message that kept um, uh, getting shorter. You know, I was going to finish the chapter, couldn't finish the chapter. Going to go down to verse 17, couldn't go down to verse 17. So we'll go down to verse 14 from Revelation 21, 11 through 14 tonight by God's grace. And hope to, to be able to bring some jewels here from that. Let's go back to verse number 9. We've already dealt with this, but as we look at verse number 9, it sets our mind back to where we've come. Hopefully, if you've stayed with us through this Revelation series, I hope you understand the book a lot better than you did beforehand, that you can read through the book and actually make sense of the book. And uh, that was the goal. And uh, I thought I would uh, do this in 25 messages. That was my original goal. This is message 40, and uh, we've probably got a good seven or eight more to go. So there you go. That's just the, what, what we've done here. So Revelation 21, we'll start in verse number 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. Now, this angel, we've already seen him. I think it was in chapter 17, if memory serves correct. Let me look. Yes. Chapter 17, then one, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. And of course, that was Babylon. That was Babylon, the city of man, the city of sin, the city that is destroyed by God. Well, okay, so now this same angel comes. He has the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, you probably already read ahead, but wouldn't you expect to see a lady? Wouldn't you expect to see maybe a, a lady in a, a beautiful wedding dress? That's not what you see. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God in radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, the, the plan for tonight is to delve into those verses... But then go to Isaiah chapter 60. I believe Isaiah chapter 60 is the companion chapter in the Old Testament to Revelation 21. And we'll try to show how that works tonight. Okay. So we've had a lot. We've gone through a lot in this particular study. I hope it's not a closed book to you. You can read it with a measure of understanding. There are still mysteries to be revealed, though. There are still things we don't fully understand. Uh, one of them that... Um, Still, uh, I have never resolved in my own mind and haven't been able to do so because the arguments on both sides are so good is about the Antichrist. The Antichrist puzzles me, to be blunt. 
Is it a literal one-man Antichrist that we call the son of perdition? Has he already come in history past? Does he come multiple times? Like it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, which says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. And so Antichrist is a great mystery. Has he already come in history past? Uh, does he come continually as a system? Or is there a final manifestation of a man of sin, um, a son of perdition, that will precede the second coming? Well, good men uh, hold to all views. Amillennialists hold to all views like that. Um, personally, I lean toward the fact that there are many antichrists all false religion is antichrist. Persecution will always exist on the earth, and in some places be stronger, in other places more peaceful. Um, one of the things that makes me think that way is, um, I was just reading an article this week um, uh, about um, the antichrist coming from a dispensationalist point of view, but it was uh, of a dispensationalist that believes that uh, the Lord comes in the middle of a seven-year tribulation. And he says, um, the church is not going to be ready for Antichrist when he shows up because he's going to persecute the church tremendously. And um, churches think they're going to be raptured and, and avoid all of that. You know? So that was his thing. And I saw his point, you know, because I'm looking for Christ. I'm not looking for Antichrist. <laughs> I'm looking for Christ to come, not Antichrist. But, um, you know, I couldn't agree with his premise that he had there. And interestingly, there is a, a growing movement amongst our dispensationalist friends uh, that believe the church will not be raptured and escape persecution like classic in dispensationalism has taught. Mid-trib raptures become very popular. Even those that believe the church will go through the tribulation uh, is becoming somewhat more popular. But, um, you know, I don't hold to a seven-year tribulation either. That is the other point. That uh, comes. So when you start arguing these things or trying to reason them out, a lot of times you have faulty presuppositions that you come to, you know. And so Antichrist is a mystery. We'll admit that it's a mystery. I'll admit there are good arguments. Uh, on most of our, my amillennial friends and the, most of the amillennial people that I read believe in an Antichrist that comes maybe two weeks before their Lord comes, or a month before the Lord comes. I mean, that, that's just a pretty popular view. My friend Sam Waldron uh, holds to that view and, uh, and uh, argues it very well. Uh, but don't tell him he didn't convince me yet, okay? So please. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but uh, at any rate, at any rate, there's a lot of questions. Um, people say, what about Daniel 9? How does Daniel 9 fit into all of this? And uh, I think we'll do a, um, a sermon on Daniel 9. And I think what we'll find out is it doesn't fit into any of this. There's something else going on in Daniel 9. But that's for another day. So, you know, over the years, I'll admit, I felt somewhat uncomfortable about something else, too. The church being called the Bride of Christ. I don't want to be a bride, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, seriously, I'm a guy, and that's kind of embarrassing and, and hard to think about. But I'm being somewhat facetious. 
That's not what it means, okay? That's not what it means. The church is the bride of Christ. I'm not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church corporate, the church from all ages together is the bride of Christ, you know? And we're in Christ. And here we saw that the bride is the city, called the holy city of Jerusalem. And believe me, as John says that and writes those words in verse number 11, having the glory of God, uh, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, that tells you he's not talking about Jerusalem as it was in his day, which was anything but a holy city. you know. And if you believe it, uh, the Revelation's written before 70 A.D., it was a city that was just waiting for destruction. If you believe it was written uh, after 70 A.D., it was a city that's already been decimated and destroyed. So, earthly Jerusalem, and we looked at verses in Galatians this morning that talked about uh, Mount Sinai, Hagar, you know, which was towards the Jerusalem that was on earth. Okay, that was prior to 70 A.D. Paul's talking about a Jerusalem that existed. And so he's talking about uh, that in Galatians chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, talking about uh, Hagar and the symbolism of Hagar. And, of course, to call Jerusalem Hagar would have been extremely offensive, really, to, to any of the Jews, because they had no use for Hagar. You know, the, there's still the, the battle between um, the different, um, the, you know, Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, this, this thing's still going on, you know, to a, this very day. So uh, it talks about that Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem which is above is free. Well, this is the Jerusalem that's above, and it comes down from God out of heaven. So we don't have to worry about the bride. Um, the bride is um, a terminology. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about husbands and wives being one flesh, but you're still two individuals, right? You're still two individuals. And, and we're in Christ, but we don't become Christ, and we don't ever lose our individuality. You know, we are separate from Christ, even though we're in Christ. We're in Christ because he paid for our sins. We're in Christ by imputation, a double imputation. So that's going on there. Um, and, and then it's, what should we think about the Jews? Well, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, tell us the Apostle Paul's view of this, uh, and um, that they would, before this present age comes to an end, turn to Christ and be saved by him. And then he gives us a very interesting statement that he says he was absolutely convinced that the entire elect remnant of physical Israel would be saved. And so we see that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So anyway, um, the form of dispensationalism that I was taught and believed uh, in for, for many, many years and, and to have to uh, really kind of unlearn and relearn had the idea of a seven-year tribulation, you know, and the New Testament church is the bride of Christ while Israel is considered the wife of God. Uh, think about that one for a bit. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll give you an illustration from somebody that's um, uh, in the news a little bit again. Um, Bill Gothard, I went to a seminars back in 1980, I think it was, maybe it was 81. Uh, Bill Gothard, um, pretty well-known, famous guy, 
Um, uh, One of the things he asserts is that divorce is unscriptural in every single circumstance, no matter what it happens to be. And he uses that as a proof that, um, well, he uses an illustration to try to prove his point. And uh, the illustration that he uses is that uh, God is the Father. Ah, Right, okay, so far so good. But God the Father uh, is waiting for adulterous Israel to turn back to him. So while God the Father, now, now get this, I'm not misapplying mis- what he says at all. This is what he says. Think about the theological ramifications of this. While God the Father is waiting for his adulterous wife to return, he remains, uh, remains um, busy with a different task. Now he's going to gather a bride for his son. And once he's finished that, once he's finished gathering a bride for his son, which is the church, Then the father goes back to Israel, his wife, and they're reunited. I go, oh my. (laughs) The theological implications of that are horrendous, you know. Uh, Just the theology proper that's being involved there, the the doctrine of God itself. It's terrible doctrine of God, and it's wrongly dividing the people of God, and it's tearing asunder what God has put together, Jew and Gentile, uh, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and taken to its furthest extremes, uh, it, some, and some have done this, have even set up a different way of salvation for Jews than for Gentiles to this very day. And some have gone so far to say that Jews are saved because they're Jews. Extreme, yeah. Some of, Bill Gothard didn't say that. But, but some have gone so far as to say that. Well, okay. Well, covenant theology does not divide the people of God. And tonight we're going to see the city which is the bride of Christ, composed of Old Testament and New Testament saints alike. So that's a lot of negative, sorry to to be so negative, but let's focus on the positive now, because the rich imagery in this passage ought to excite us and cause us to to really long for the day that we will see our Savior, you know. So um, we'll go back to Revelation 21 again. Like I said, 9 and 10, we already looked at it. This angel already appeared, sets up the contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon, the city of man, uh, the city of wickedness. Jerusalem, which is above, which is free, as we've said. And that was Galatians uh, 4, 25, and 26. Galatians 4, 25 says, uh, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Why is she in slavery with her children? Because she doesn't believe in Messiah. As simple as that. Hebrews 12, 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So what we see here in Revelation 21 is not unknown in other passages of Scripture, including Isaiah 60 that we'll look at, but has the idea of the glory of God and the heavenly Jerusalem, the church as the bride of Christ. Jerusalem, the city, is the bride of Christ. It shouldn't confuse us that the church is the bride of Christ and that Jerusalem, the city, is the bride of Christ. It's symbolic. So, we think of everything we've learned from the book of Revelation 
But not only that, we think of what we've learned from the Old Testament, what we learn uh, from the epistles and such like that. And we come to these verses. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 through 22 are like bookends on the great story of God. You know, Genesis 1 through 3, Revelation 21 and 22. Just think of them as the bookends on the great story of God. And then the unfolding drama of redemption taking place all the way through the rest of Scripture. You know, often given to us in covenant form until we come to the new covenant where it's plainly said to us in non-symbolic language uh, throughout the, the epistles. Okay, so three Three outlines, or three points to make tonight. Uh, the glory of the city, the walls of the city, and then the foundation of the city. That's pretty simple. So that's what we're going to be looking at. The, the glory of the city, the walls of the city, and the foundation of the city. Remember, this symbolic city is what we're talking about. Verse number 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So it's the first picture we see, dazzling light. And the glory of God came and, and rested on the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the temple in the Old Testament. But this is dazzling light that's more dazzling and a more permanent display than that. Moses was taken up to the top of Mount Pisgah to see the promised land of Canaan. That was God's graciousness to Moses. Wasn't able to enter the land, but he could see it from afar. John is taken in a vision to the top of a mountain to view the true and everlasting land of promise, the home of every believer down through the ages, the land that Abraham really wanted to see. He walked all over the promised land, the physical promised land, without ever owning any of it except a cemetery. But by faith, he looked for this city, which is above. Okay. Having the glory of God. The city has this glory. It's a profound statement. You can see it from the scriptures. Man was created upright in the image of God. Sin marred that image in man horribly and did damage on the outside to all creation. He damaged himself, then he damaged the creation not telling you anything you don't know. But here's the wonderful thing. This is recreation. The glory of God restored. I want you to think about this. We're going to live in a world that is suited exactly for us. Exactly what it ought to be. Fully suited for us in the eternal state. I can't tell you what heaven is going to be like, the new heavens and the new earth. I can't tell you what they're going to be like. I've tried. I've thought about it. I, uh, I know it's going to be better than I think it's going to be. But the only way I can describe it is it's going to be exactly what we've been made for. Exactly the way God made us is the way that we'll live for all eternity. We're marred by sin right now. The creation itself is marred by sin. It's all going to be recreated and exactly what we need. And the Bible tells us when we shall see him, 
And we shall be like him. But we will see him as he is. Okay? So remember, we as the church are the city and the bride. Okay? So Romans 1, 8, well, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's unimaginable glory. The glory of God, as you and I have never seen it and have never experienced it. And then as you look, it says a jasper. A most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, you ladies probably know more about birthstones and such like that as I do. I don't even know if jasper is a birthstone. To tell you the truth, probably is. I don't know. Anybody know? Doesn't matter, does it? I do know this about jaspers. I've seen them. Uh, they're not clear. And they're not crystal. They're opaque. You, you can't see through them. <laughs> okay, that's just the way it is. Here is a jasper, clear as crystal. It's hard to know exactly what's being said here because it's an unusual word. But we do know this. When God makes all things new, things are not going to look exactly the same as they do today. And also remember, this is a symbolic vision. It's a rare jewel. That's the point. It actually tells us that. It's a rare jewel. There's nothing common about this city at all. And now let's go to the walls that surround the city. Because there's a message there for us to hear. Verse 12 it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates there were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel, sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Okay, well, why would God be so redundant as to say it that way? Because it's not redundant at all. There's a message for us by understanding that. Uh, the, the gates, the north, south, east, west. What, what does that mean, north, south, east, west? That's encompassing the entire world, isn't it? That's everything. And four is a number that often means exactly that, too. But here it's specifically laid out for us. It's the north, south, east, and west, where the elect come from. Where did the elect come from? The Bible. Jesus Christ said, from the north, south, east, and west, they all come together to the feast. And here it is, being given to us in that way. High walls representing safety, security, and rest. That's what they symbolize, safety, security, and rest. In fact, we're going to see tonight uh, scriptural proof of that, by the way, that these walls mean that. But um, Pastor Ken has, has brought out in his book of Genesis series, so it shouldn't surprise us again, that safety, security, and rest is a goal that we would have for all eternity. And just look at verse 27. We're not going to make it this far in Revelation 21, but look at verse 27 of that, that chapter. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So these walls represent our salvation, and our security. Isaiah 26, 1 and 2 says, uh, here it says, um, In that day the song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. 
It's a strong city, safe and secure. Uh, look at verse 25 of, a 21, of chapter 21. Verse 25 says this, um, uh, its gates will never be shut by day and there'll be no night there. Now, if its gates are open and never shut by day, so it's always open in the day, and there's no night there, they're always open. Okay? They don't, they're not closed, and there's no danger. Why? There's no danger because there's no enemies outside. You've got angels guarding the gates, and yet there's no enemy. So you don't have to worry. There's nothing to worry about. It's safety, security, and rest, you know? Huge walls. Uh, I thought maybe we'd get to the size of the walls. But we're, we're not going to try to do that tonight because we're not going to rush through. We're, we'll save that for another time because there's a real story to talk about the size of the walls. They're important. But they're huge walls. And gates are open. You know, well, no enemy. And an angel guards each one anyway. And um, how many angels would it take to... Uh, to cause mass destruction. Well, read the Old Testament and just look what the death angel was able to do and, and look what another angel was able to do in another place. These angels are unimaginably powerful in that way. But one day you and I will judge angels. Okay? Amazing thought. You know? So, why open? Why are these gates always open? Because the way of salvation is open to all the world. And where did this salvation come from? It's the salvation promised in the Old Testament that comes through Israel, that brings in Messiah. So the 12 gates have inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is also the undoing of the curse from Eden when the angel guarded the tree of life to keep Adam and Eve away. These angels are doing just the opposite. They're not keeping us away. They're just extra security that really isn't even needed. But there's, they're there. They're there to help us and to remind us. Now, as we move on, let's go to the foundation of the city in verse 14. The foundation of the city. Okay. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There it is again. You know, we've seen 12 so many times. We've seen 12 times 12, uh, 144. We've seen 144,000. Uh, there are multiples of, of 12 times 12 times 1,000. So we've seen this imagery over and over again with numbers. And we should always be thinking about the people of God as we think of the number 12. And of course, the, when we have them together, 12 plus 12, we should think about the entirety of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. One people of God. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. And Ephesians 2, 19-22 tells us this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, 
We have the high walls built on the foundation. And we have the entirety of the people of God that is the city of God, that is the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the reason I don't want to go on further here, because I want to take you to Isaiah 60, which I believe is a um, companion to chapter 21. So turn to Isaiah 60, and some of the imagery we've already seen, we're going to see here. Uh, Many throw Isaiah 60 into a future millennium. Well, I believe in realized eschatology, that we don't have a future millennium coming. When the Lord comes, the eternal state begins. You know, and I think that makes all kinds of biblical sense. So what we ought to be able to do is we ought to be able to look through the symbolism and, and see the reality of what we have and what we anticipate. That's the way that eschatology works. It's the now and the not yet. We have things that are now that belong to us, but they're in seed form, they're in infancy, they don't look perfect to us. Okay, They do to God, but they don't look perfect to us. Uh, we see the perfection at the end. Of course, God himself um, says that uh, it's perfect already. We have a tendency to view the church as kind of small, kind of humble, kind of lurching along, kind of failing, not really accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish, and, and woe is us. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not what we're supposed to be thinking. That shouldn't be the way that we think. Christ Jesus the Lord loves the church and gave himself for it. You know, he's pleased with his church. He loves his church. He's glad for his church. He sanctifies his church. Yeah, let's face it. Churches, our church included, has faults and imperfections today. But it also has the beginnings of everything it will be when fully formed and glorified. And Isaiah uses language to talk of the new covenant and the eternal state. And we shouldn't be surprised at this intermixing for the new covenant and the church flow into the eternal state. Okay? So Isaiah 60. We'll start there. Isaiah 60. First three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Uh, kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? Glory of the Lord. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And these three verses set the tone for what Isaiah 60 is going to be all about. They are the radiant people of God They are the darkened, blinded people who do not know God in this world. Uh, We're glad to say what keeps us from being utterly discouraged is the fact that we know that we were once those darkened, uh, blinded people, but God revealed himself to us. So we ought to continually remember that some of those people that are causing you the most trouble today, 
Some of those people that seem to be the most wicked today. Some of those people that you would never, ever think anything of that's good will be saved themselves and become the radiant people of God. You know? And we've said it many times. I've never seen it fail yet uh, that um, you know, there's going to be someone sitting in a pew next to you five years from now, if God should so tarry, that today doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ at all. And in 40 years of ministry, it's never failed uh, to be seen as true. You know? uh, so there you go. That there's, there's hope. There's always hope. You know? That's why we put Christ out to people, because there's hope. Only the elect are going to come, absolutely. But how do the elect come? By the preaching of the gospel, by witnessing, by living a Christian life in front of them, doing the things that we ought to be doing are what God uses to bring others to faith, just like he brought you to faith. Okay, So it keeps on going, and we'll keep on going until the Lord returns. Let's read verses 3 through 5. We already read verse 3, but it actually is kind of the link here. Verses 1 and 2 kind of set the stage, and then verse 3 takes us a little further. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. You shall see and be radiant. There's that word there. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. And this is where, if we're thinking too literally and too physically, we, we miss the point. It's like, and that's what's happened to many of our, our Jewish friends. They think too literally about this. And they say, well, we're going to be great. Our nation's going to be great. And we're going to be rich. And, and the entire world's going to be looking to us, you know. And pride comes in. And it's not what it's about, you know. It's what we saw in Revelation 21, that radiance, that glory that God has there. And these nations are not bringing literal riches, but they're bringing themselves as worshipers. And that's what's happening. It's God saving people from the north, south, east, and west. And it doesn't mean in the eternal state. I'm not trying to say that in the eternal state Gentiles uh, will still be coming to faith. No, that's, that's, this is the already and the not yet. Okay, already, right now, Gentiles are coming. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Jews are coming too. They're coming and they're coming and coming. Well, the day of coming will be over when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. That day will be over. But we're in that state now where the coming is happening. Today is the day of salvation. That doesn't mean you need to come to the altar today to be saved. It means that today, this time that we're living in now is the day for people to be saved. And everybody should be told the good news of the gospel. You know. Well, one day it'll happen no more. Because the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in, and the fullness of the Jews will have come in, and there are, everybody else will be shut out, shut out, cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels, and all that are written in the Lamb's book of life will be accounted for, you know. This radiance that we see in verse number 5 here, that we saw in verse 11 of Revelation 21, 
You know, this radiance to God's people, uh, you, can, you can see it if you're enlightened by the Holy Spirit, you know. Having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, it said in the book of Revelation, you know. Well, uh, in Old Testament prophecy, we see the, the physical and the spiritual kind of mixed together. Often the spiritual is given to us in physical realms. Look at verse number 6 of Isaiah 20. We see it here, earthly language. Uh, Then it says, um, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. These from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. What a little jewel there, huh? Who got gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Ah, yeah, well, there you go. And, um, you know... uh, The myrrh, of course, symbolizing death. But um, gold and and frankincense, as as you know. Well, okay. Verse 7. The flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Isaiah and his readers probably thought, oh, he's talking about the temple. Yeah, he's talking about the temple. Talking about the real temple. The temple that we will see as we finish Revelation 21. And what that spiritual temple is all about. Okay, It meant more than what they thought. We can't blame them for that. We will not blame them for, for not realizing that it means more than, than, um, than they thought. They hadn't read the end of the story. But if we don't get it, I think we can stand to be blamed. We ought to get it by being better students of the word than that. We go to verse number 8 and 9. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Well, the gate's not shut, as we saw in Revelation 21, so the coming in, today the day of salvation, verse 18 of Revelation 21, the walls are salvation, Jesus is the door, John chapter 10, the 12 gates are never shut, because the door of salvation is fully open. Um, I, I think I misspoke a moment ago. I said Revelation twenty one eighteen. It's actually um, Isaiah sixty verse eighteen. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your border. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So I meant to say Isaiah, not Revelation twenty one. But we're comparing the two here. Verse fourteen is, is an amazing verse. Okay. Amazing verses we come through here. Verse 14 of all... Wait, let's see. I read all the way through 13, did I not? I don't think I did. Let me try that again. Okay. Yeah, verse 10. Look about verse 10, so I don't lose my place. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually, Day and night, they shall not be shut. Okay, we already saw that in Revelation 21. 
that the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, and that's themselves, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, uh, yeah, and to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. And you could go, we're not going to go there for, for lack of time, but there's so many places you can go and so much that you can do with this. Uh, Solomon in 1 Kings uh, chapter 6 uh, makes an agreement to get the, the cedars of Lebanon, okay, and the, the glory of Lebanon is mentioned here, to build the earthly temple. And it wasn't just cedars, he, he also got other kinds of wood too. Uh, that uh, were used to that way and then overlaid a lot of things with gold. And you can read about that. I just read about that this, this week in my own personal devotions as I'm working my way through the Bible there. And um, I, I started thinking about that. Well, you know, there's verses that talk about that. That's what he actually literally did, but there's a symbolism that he may not have even realized himself that, that's going on as these things are taking place. So, you know... Um, for the physical temple that was already there in Isaiah's day, but of course uh, the spiritual temple to come that we'll be dealing with as we go. Verse 14, and here's an amazing verse. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And it would be easy to say, well, that's not talking about the church, that's talking about Christ. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it is talking about Christ, but it's talking about the church too. Talking about the church for the very reason of the, the coming together of the two and the very fact that we've been told already in Revelation 21 about uh, the greatness that, that uh, we have and the blessings that we have. And... Um, the amazing thing about this verse to me that I think uh, we really need to see is I think somehow, some way, at the last day, the final judgment, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, they'll do so against their will because there's nothing else that they can do. They have to admit it. But we too will be vindicated. The loud and the proud mockers of this world will have to admit that we truly are the people of God and all their philosophies and, and such like that were vain and all their persecutions were their shame. And I think that's what we need to see, that that's going to be part of what it's all about too. Oh, it's all about Jesus, don't get me wrong, but it's also about what Jesus has done for us. So you'd ask, well, isn't, isn't Isaiah 60 all about Christ? Yeah, about Christ and his church. And we're now one because we're in Christ as his bride. And like I said, don't get me wrong, we don't become Christ. But just like Ephesians 5, the mystery that's there. You know, husband and wife are one. They two shall be one flesh, yet individual. So it is with Christ and the church. Let's just finish Isaiah 60, and uh, then we'll go to the communion table. Just some, some notes as we go here, real quick. Verse 15, whereas you've been forsaken and hated 
with no one passing through, I'll make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And then, kind of interesting verse, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. And instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I'll make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Peace and righteousness. That, that's not too hard to, to serve under, is it? You know? And um, violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. And I think you know by now that's not um, some pieces of dirt in Palestine, you know, okay. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Amen. We're privileged to live in a very, very glorious time in God's economy, you know. We get to read and talk about things uh, that um, others only saw so dimly. Oh, they loved the Lord, though, and they served the Lord. And they served the Lord with the light that they had. And then we have guys like Isaiah, you know, uh, so many years before the coming of Christ, so many centuries before the coming of Christ, writing these things and talking about, well, he probably, what he didn't fully understand, Christ and his church, you know. And we're glorious, gloriously able to see the radiance of it all. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, then we'll go to the communion table. Father, we thank you for all that you've written in your word. We just scratch the surface, and we just begin to, to see what you have prepared. But you've said in your word that eye is not seen, nor ear heard, or entered into the heart of man, the things that you have prepared for those that love you. Lord, by faith we believe that to be true. And we can't even enunciate really all what those things are. But we know that the land that we will live in, the eternity that we will live in, will be exactly what's suited for us. The way that you made us, the way that you've perfected us, the way that you've brought us to be. We can try to explain it and words fail us. And we just have to fall short as we try. And so we put our hand over our mouth. We look to your word. We go with your word and believe it. And we thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord, who's made all of these things possible for us by his sacrifice. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.